Hey, I I was thinking about one of my favorite toys from when I was a kid. I was eight or nine years old. I had this toy. Some of you remember these. Some of you have seen these. I I looked around a little bit for this toy this week. I wanted to have one on stage. I couldn't find one. I didn't look really hard. I'm sure they're still out there. You can order them on Amazon and all that kind of stuff I know. And they're Viewmasters. You remember the Viewmasters? They were those red kind of binocular looking things. And you you put the uh, cardboard discs in the the top of the Viewmaster and you, you clicked on the lever and you saw a different picture. And as the pictures went by, you just, it was sort of 1980s virtual reality for some of you who are, you, 3D pictures as you clicked on the lever and they went by. And I was thinking about this toy. I, I'm not sure why, but I was remembering, you know, I mean, I love to play with this little thing. And you, you could read comic books. You could go anywhere. You could be immersed in these different worlds all through this little red set of binoculars and looking in them and clicking the lever and seeing all the different stories and whatnot. And so I, I was doing a little search on the internet, and I found an article uh, this guy wrote about what he considers the lamest Viewmaster slides and the coolest Viewmaster slides. So I thought I'd share a couple with you, okay? So we'll start with the lamest, according to this author, the lamest Viewmaster slides of all time. One of them was this Viewmaster slide, a story about John Travolta. I don't think we really need to go much further than this, that uh, we can agree with the author. Maybe Viewmaster slides about John Travolta would be lame. The second lamest, that, uh, one of these that I wanted to share was Star Trek. And, and this guy's so, uh, yeah, right? I mean, we've got some Trekkies out there. They're Spock rules, whatever. And so uh, this guy said, though, that this was a silly story one of the silliest stories from Star Trek that they decided to make into a Viewmaster slide, so it qualifies as lame. I'm not sure when he saw the, or heard or read or watched the really sophisticated Star Trek story, but he considered this one silly, so it was lame. The third one here is this St. Louis, right? I mean, in lame, you're watching somebody's uh, vacation slideshow on Viewmaster, and then... St. Louis. And so we'll, we'll leave it at that. So those were the lame uh, Viewmaster slides. The really cool Viewmaster slides started with, the, he said this is the coolest uh, Viewmaster slide of all time, was about Frankenstein. His rationale here was that it didn't use just animation, that they were claymation little figures that they posed in these, these different scenes, and so that it was the best 3D of any Viewmaster slide of all time. Uh, you can Go out and search for the 1968 version of this and decide for yourself. It was the coolest of all time. The next one that I'll share with you is just the G.I. Joe, kind of the same rationale here. They used those giant G.I. Joe dolls and, and set up all the scenes themselves, and so the 3D was, was extra cool, the author said. And you can go to lunch later and debate whether the author was right that these Viewmaster slides were lame or cool or, or whatever, and you can have that conversation at lunchtime. And if you do, choose someplace better to go to lunch, I don't know, but you can have that conversation. But the real deal is that with these Viewmaster slides, you know, you could, you could change your view with just a click of the lever. You click the lever and your whole view changed. And with that change of scenery, with that change of viewpoint, sometimes your ideas changed. Maybe, maybe you read that, that uh, Viewmaster slide and you watched that Viewmaster slide about St. Louis and you just fell in love with St. Louis. 
and you moved to St. Louis. Maybe, maybe you watched that Viewmaster slide of John Travolta and you just thought, no, John Travolta is the coolest guy ever. That change of view can sometimes change your attitude. It can change the direction even that you, that you go in, in life, and when, especially when you consider some of the really big ideas in life. When we consider the really big stuff in life, we have to understand that, hey, the way we view that really affects what we actually do in life. You know, the, the, our viewpoint, it affects maybe our attitude and then our ideas, and then it affects what we actually do and how we actually live. And so when we consider the really big stuff, the big questions in life, then we have to consider, you know, where am I viewing this from? What's my view? What's my starting point? Should my view or can my view change? And so when we consider all the big stuff in life, and over the next uh, three weeks we'll be in this series that we're calling Get Rich, that we're going to think about 1 Timothy chapter 6 and some of God's teaching about money and the stuff that he's given us to manage in life, and we'll have to consider, you know, what's our view of those resources? How do we view money? How do we view the stuff that's necessary to make it through life and that he's given us to, to manage in life? How we view money really matters. And I think in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, this section of scripture teaches us two different views about money and the resources that God has given us to manage. And as we consider those resources at our disposal, how that impacts each one of our lives. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them to the book of 1 Timothy, towards the back of your New Testament. We'll take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to study this morning verses 6 through 10 and the two views that this section of Scripture teaches us that each one of us might have about money and the resources that God has given us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, this is what God's Word says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So two different views about money that are taught here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. We're going to consider these two different views, and in doing that, we're going to kind of approach this section of Scripture, maybe in a little bit of an atypical way for us here. We're going to kind of work backwards through this section of Scripture, okay? We're going to divide it in half and take the second half first, really, is what we're going to do as we consider these two different views, because I think in verses 9 and 10, we learn this first view that we need to consider, this view about money and resources that sort of says, I want more. Look at verses 9 and 10. For those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who want to get rich. You know, we've said it before from the stage, and, and I, I think there are just certain words that when we read in Scripture, we have to stop and sort of consider. And one of those words that we read in Scripture that we have to stop and talk about every time, I think, is this word rich. You know, we, we start by reading verse 9, those who want to get rich. And when you read the 
the word rich, when you hear the word rich, when you read or hear or, or view the word wealthy, it's one of those words that we instantly think, well, they, the author, whoever, is talking about somebody else. Because, you know, it, it's just how we view those ideas of, of wealth, of richness, that it's viewed on a sliding scale. And so we'll place ourselves somewhere on that sliding scale, and, and usually it's sort of outside of you know, that top whatever percent, right? If we took a poll this morning and we said, do you consider yourself to be wealthy? Probably most of us would say, well, you know, not so much. Maybe the guy down the street who lives in the big house, well, he's wealthy, he's rich. You know, the, the person I take my stock tips from, right? They've done really well. They're rich, they're wealthy, but not, not me so much. And so that tends to be sort of how we view it. We just have a different view about uh, that word and that idea and how we associate it. We, we do this with all sorts of stuff. I, was, I saw this picture uh, this week as I was doing a little study. It's a picture, well, l- let's go ahead and take a look at it. And just you tell me what you see as you, as you see this picture. The author says that people typically, when you first view the picture, you'll see two different things, all right? You'll see either a young woman kind of looking away or an elderly woman kind of looking downtrodden. And so typically when people look at this picture, they'll see one of those two images in the picture. And then, then he went on to describe it and said, you can really see both of these images so just let me take a little poll. Who sees the young woman looking away? All right. Who sees an elderly woman in this picture? All right. There are, there are fewer of, of you guys. I, I studied this all week, and I went back, and the author gives this description, and he, he explained how to see the elderly woman. And I looked at it. If people walked by the office, they probably thought, does that guy ever do anything? Because I'm just staring at this picture. I'm like, trying to understand. I cannot see the older woman. He he, I, can't, I can't make it out. He describes the choker necklace on the young woman as part of the mouth and the ear as part of the eye and the, the chin as the nose. And I, I can read the description and hear the description and I, can't, I still can't see the older woman. So I don't know what that says about me. I'm slow. I'm whatever. I, I get that. But, but just when we view the picture at first... Each of us sees something a little bit different. We have this different view of, of how we look at that illustration. And, uh, and we do the same thing with, with important ideas in our life, with this idea of wealth, of riches, of money. We each come to that with a little bit of, of a different viewpoint. And so when we read these words in verse 9, those who want to get rich, we right, right away say, well, that's not really me. You know, I'm not rich. And first of all, one of the things we need to understand is that, hey, verse 9 isn't talking about necessarily there's a problem with being rich. That's not necessarily what verse 9 says. Verse 9 is talking about this view that says, I want more. I want more. And in reality, it doesn't matter where we put ourselves on that sliding scale. Whether, whether if we took a poll and said, do you consider yourself to be wealthy? And you said, yeah, I'm rolling in it. Or whether you said, no, not so much. In fact, I'm really struggling. And I don't have enough. I, can't, I don't have enough to go at the end of the month. I don't have enough resources left. I'm really, really struggling. And you place yourself at the other end of that sliding scale somewhere. It, this attitude of, I want more, 
can be found no matter where we place ourselves on that sliding scale, no matter how we play the comparison game. We can all be, find ourselves trapped in this view of, I want more. Consider these, these warning signs of being trapped in that, that view of, I want more. No matter where you might place yourself on that sliding scale, if these things are true in your life, then you are in danger of, of being trapped in that position that verse 9 will go on to talk about. If your debt is growing each month, if you miss a paycheck, then you wouldn't be able to cover your bills. If you and your spouse fight about money on a regular basis, if you can never put money into savings or retirement, if you're constantly stressed about money, if you sometimes think it's because of money and resources that I can't really live the life that I'm intended to live, that God intends for me to live, then those are all warning signs that maybe no matter where you might fall on that sliding scale of wealth, that you are perhaps in danger of being trapped by this view that says, I want and I need more and more. Verse 9 goes on, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And those are not easy words to read, huh? That's a grave warning. That as we, as we operate from this viewpoint of I want, of I need, of I want more, then it can ruin all sorts of things in our lives. It can ruin relationships. There's a story told in the Old Testament about King Ahab. Some of you remember King Ahab. Uh, King Ahab uh, thought one day, you know what I need? I need a little more land. And if I had this parcel of land over here next door to me, then my life would be set. I need more, he thought. And so he went to his neighbor and said, uh, you know, this land would look really good in my por portfolio. I need this section of, of land. I want to buy that from you. The only problem is, is that his neighbor refused. He said, no, I don't want to sell that land. I, I, I'm not, it's not for sale. I'm not offering it for sale. And so First uh, Kings chapter 21, verse 4 says that King Ahab came home and he was sad and sullen. And when his wife Jezebel asked, what's the matter? He said, well, I, I really wanted this, this parcel of land, and, and the neighbor won't sell it to me. And so his wife made a way for his neighbor to go away. And she arranged for the death of his neighbor. And so Ahab took the land that he wanted. Now, that's an extreme version of that I want more, and that attitude and that viewpoint of I want more destroyed this friendship and this relationship, this uh, neighbor relationship between Ahab and his neighbor. That, that viewpoint of I want more can destroy even, you know, kind of our emotional and psychological foundation. A professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania conducted a study about depression, and one of the things that he learned was that he found that there was a sharp uh, increase in depression since World War II. Uh, people born after 1945, he determined, were ten times more likely to suffer from depres depression than people born before 1945. Now, if you, if you think about it, that, that correlates with this huge increase in wealth in the United States where this study was done. That after 1945, as the wealth increased, as the middle class grew, all those good things happened, then the increase of cases of depression increased as well. He went on to say that uh, in non-westernized cultures, uh, 
accounts of depression were much, much lower. In the more primitive cultures, there were almost no cases of depression. Now, certainly, that, this is a complicated issue, and, and not every case of depression is due to this viewpoint of I want or I need more, but there seems at least to be some correlation between these two things at least some of the time. This idea of I want more or I need more, we might think, well, that would actually secure our financial futures. But that viewpoint of always, no matter where you're at on that sliding scale of needing and wanting more, uh, actually does the opposite. It destroys our financial uh, future. And maybe it's reasons like uh, that often when we get in that position of I want and I need more, we sort of look for that quick way, that fast way to get to the end of that financial uh, sliding scale to get more. And, and that sort of... Uh, goes right along with the increase in stuff like gambling in the United States. Over $50 billion a decade ago was, was lost in legal wagering in the United States, and that number has only grown over the last decade as more opportunities for uh, gambling have increased like that. Over 20% of bankruptcies in the United States uh, are directly linked to gambling debts. This, this idea and this attitude that I want and I need more and I have to get it quickly. It can destroy our relationships and our emotional, psychological foundation. It can destroy our financial futures. It can even destroy uh, lives. I'm not sure why I read this book, and I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I read this book, uh, honestly, but I, I found this book and I started reading it, and it was a book about the life of, of Elvis Presley. And so I read this book, and I, I'm not sure why. I remember my mom had an eight-track tape of Elvis songs, and I, we used to listen to the kids, ask your parents what an eight-track is, and they'll tell you, or grandparents, whatever the case is, they'll figure it out. But uh, anyway, I read this book about Elvis Presley, and I learned some things about uh, Elvis and uh, the United States, I guess. There's a home in the United States that is the most visited home of any home in the United States. What do you suppose that is? See, I tricked you. It's the White House. The White House is the most visited home of any home in the United States, but there's a second home that's the second most visited home in the United States, and that is Graceland. Over $15 million dollars we're spent last year on visiting Graceland and seeing the, you know, jungle room and the cars and, and all of that stuff. And this, I learned in this book that, that Elvis Presley earned more money at a faster rate than anybody else in that same era. He grew on that sliding scale of wealth faster and further than anybody else during his era. So the author claims. And yet, you know, we know how his life ended and that, you know, that wasn't, that accumulation of stuff didn't really fulfill him. It didn't lead to happiness. You know, this viewpoint of I want and I need more, I have to get there fast, can destroy so many things in, in our lives. It can be so very dangerous 
Verse 10 goes on to say, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we have to really kind of zero in and, and consider how verse 10 begins because we've sort of, at this point, we, man, we shoveled a lot of dirt on money. You know, you might walk away, if we ended this morning, you might walk away thinking, okay, Jesus loves Diet Coke and money is bad, right? And really, money is just a thing. It's just a, like any other thing. It's not really good or bad. Money is, whether we like it or not, is a necessity in life. You know, we, we need it to, to uh, provide for our families. You know, that, that stuff we need, the, the basic necessities of life that we'll talk about later. And so, verse 10 becomes pretty important. For the love of money is the root, is a root of all kinds of evil. For the love of money. And we have to understand what that term means. Because there's some of us in this room that really, you know, we love understanding how to utilize money and how to make that resource go as far as it can and, you know, how to account for it. And so what verse 10 isn't teaching us is that, you know, all accountants are going to hell. That's not what it means. Right? Understanding, you know, that there are principles that we, and practical tools that we can use to understand money doesn't, isn't what verse 10 is talking about. We need stuff like that. We need, we need to understand practical tools like the 10-10-80 principle, right? This very simple principle that, you know, you give away 10% of your income, you save 10% of your income, and you live on 80% of your income. Right? We need sort of those practical understandings of how we can kind of fit into God's way of living and that it can help us make sense of that. This love of money is really pointing to and talking about this first view that is so dangerous. This view that I want and I need, I want more and I want more and I want more. Man, it's hard to see it in ourselves too. I was thinking that, you know, it's like when you give kids, you know, you pass out kids snacks at school or whatever, and, and kids will look at those snacks, won't they? And they'll kind of look at their snacks, and they'll look at the snacks next to them, and they'll decide, I think Johnny got more than me. You know, kids, people do that. Just last night, I could, you know, we're driving home from Lacey's softball game, and I can't believe that this conversation took place before I'm teaching this message last night. Sherry's at work, and it's late, a little bit late after the softball game. We haven't eaten dinner yet. Dad's in charge, so that means we're going to the drive-thru. And we go through the drive-thru, and I order, you know, all these healthy stuff for the kids, and, and then we're passing it out, and, and Lacey's, Clayton's passing the French fries to his sister in the back seat. And Lacey said, Clayton, you took the bag with the most French fries. And he said, they're the same size French fries. And Lacey, no, but you took the one with the most French fries. And I said, Lacey, relax. We're driving down the road in a little while. Lacey said, Clayton, can I have a drink? And Clayton passed back his drink to Lacey and, and Zoe, and they took a drink and passed it back. And Clayton shook the cup when it got back to him. And he's like, what happened to my, you know, where did it all go? And Lacey said, Clayton, just calm down. I said, honey, don't you understand that just three minutes ago, you were screaming at your brother about how many french fries he took. That's the same attitude. It's so hard for us to see in ourselves. It's so hard for us to see in ourselves 
that I'm viewing money with this attitude of I want and I need more. Some people eager to, for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It destroys in so many different ways and it's so dangerous. We need to quickly consider the better way to view money that God offers us here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So let's consider a view number two, that I want contentment. Verses 6 to 8 say, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. All right, so we've sort of been working backwards through this section of Scripture, and we're going to continue to do that with these verses. Let's start with verse 8 as we consider this better way to view the resources that God has given us. I want contentment. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Food and clothing just represent those necessities in life, that, those simple things that we need to, to keep going in life, uh, food, shelter, transportation, whatever that list looks like in today's uh, day and age. That's what Paul is talking about here in, in, in verse 8. Now, what Paul isn't saying is that, hey, you need to live a life that's just sort of a, a poverty level, sort of just enough to get by. He's not really teaching us that. In fact, in verse 17, uh, Paul will go on to say that, that everything that God has given us is, is for our enjoyment, and we can enjoy those things. And, we can, and so God doesn't necessarily want us to live a life that is uh, without enjoyment. But what he does want us to understand is that when we view this, the stuff that he's given us and the resources that he's given us to manage, the, that our view of money has to get to a place where we say enough is enough, right? We, can, we, we have enough. We, we have what we need. Now, again, this is a sliding scale. Uh, the end of the baseball season leads to all these contract negotiations. Maybe you read about the Royals signing this player and not signing that player, agreeing to this option and not agreeing to another option. One of my favorite players because of you know, last year's World Series is a guy by the name of Cespedes who plays for the Mets. He recently declined his option for a contract with the New York Mets that was set to pay him $47 million dollars. Now, why did he decline that option? Because he believes somebody will pay him more than $47 million. Now, this is sliding scale, right? And so when we talk about somebody uh, dealing with a contract worth $47 million, man, it's way easy for us to say, how come that guy can't understand that enough is enough? But when you consider that you are a resident, a citizen of the United States, that you live in the United States of America, and that when you look at the, the average income in the United States compared to the average income, the average per capita income around the world is $2,000. Now that increases in the United States to over $16,000. That over half of the people in the United States live in the very highest percentage of per day income in the world. Only 7% of the people live in that same per day income category of the highest of the high around the rest of the world. So that means when you look, when you consider a, a major league baseball player refusing his contract because he thinks he can sign a bigger one, and you say, how come that guy can't figure out that enough is enough? When somebody from somewhere else in the world, from third world wherever on our globe today considers your last salary negotiation, 
He's thinking the very same thing. Right? We have to understand. We have to figure out. We have to change that viewpoint. Now, that's not saying that we ought to trade places or that we can trade places or any of that stuff. But we have to change our viewpoint to figure out that enough is enough and that we can be content with what we have. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. You know, maybe it helps us to shift that viewpoint, to click on that lever and to get a different view of our wealth when we consider that the biggest impact, the, only, the eternal impact that our resources and that our money can have can only be made in this lifetime. We can't take it with us. There's not an opportunity to, to feed the homeless or shelter the homeless or to, to provide for those in need past this lifetime. We have the opportunity today to decide when, when you consider John's message last week on the Great Commission that we have this role to play in God's big plan and that he's resourced us in a unique way, in a unique way in our time, in our place in history, in our location to play this role in, in, in resourcing that plan and that growth of his kingdom. You know, in just a few weeks here at Wallula Christian Church, we'll begin our Walk to the Manger Christmas offering. And that Christmas offering will fund uh, our work in, in 2017 with our third Thursday meals. We'll, we'll have this opportunity to feed hungry people every week or every month in 2017. We'll have the opportunity as that Christmas offering will be utilized to help with the, the building program and the, the new plans with the, the Leavenworth Shelter of Hope. We'll have the opportunity to provide a safe place to sleep every night in 2017 for the homeless in Leavenworth. We'll have the opportunity to fund, to, to help fund our helping ministry here at Wallula Christian Church. And so that will help to, to provide necessary, uh, simple resources like, I can't keep the heat on in my house in February. Can you help me do that? We'll have the opportunity to provide those necessary resources for folks that are just under-resourced in our communities. The, the way we view our money today has an eternal impact in the lives of, of over 20,000 people we helped feed last year. Isn't that cool? Or 20,000 meals. It's probably not 20. Same people every month, but 20,000 meals. Isn't that pretty awesome? Okay, take my word for it. It is. For we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out. Verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. That word godliness is, has, means wholeness. It's like when you read in James chapter 2 about uh, this right relationship with God. It's this balance and this culmination of faith and works. It's that wholeness in our lives. And, and so that godliness with contentment offers us great gain. One author said that contentment is not having what you want. True contentment is wanting only what you have. Another author went on to say that there are two ways uh, to get enough. One is to accumulate more. The other is to desire less. 
Paul talked about this idea of commitment in, first, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Go ahead and just write those verses down in your notes. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Go and read those this week and just consider what Paul learned about contentment. The first thing that Paul would teach us about contentment is that, in fact, contentment is learned. It's not natural. Uh, for most of us, for I think every one of us, our natural inclination is that first viewpoint of resources. When we were a kid in kindergarten, they passed out snacks. Most of us were sort of seeing if Johnny got more than us. Our first, our, our initial inclination, our natural inclination is to say, I want more. So contentment is learned. We have to figure out how do we shift the lever and view money and resources in a different way? How do we remember that no matter what is going on in our world around us or in our lives or our physical lives or with our, with our health, with our relationships, or even with our money, that God is sovereign, that he's in control, and that he has a plan for each of us? We have to shift that lever and change the way we view our resources to, to view, uh, to want and desire contentment instead of more. You know, it's interesting, you know, the Viewmaster, you see these different slideshows. I was uh, looking through this picture album recently and saw a vacation that Sherry and I took before we had kids. It's one of those vacations, maybe you've had one, where everything went wrong. You know, the car broke down and the reservations weren't there and everything was wrong. And you end up spending way too much money just to sort of get home and not really enjoy the vacation and, and just to be done with the trip. Maybe you've had one of those trips. Maybe you've, you've had a vacation like that. And I'm looking at these pictures from that trip and I'm remembering everything that went wrong and, and as I'm looking at them, I'm just sort of laughing to myself. Maybe you've had that reaction too. You know, months or years or decades after that trip, you can look back and you sort of laugh at what seems so important at the time. And just through years and experience and wisdom, you've realized, man, none of that was really so very important. You know, our view of perhaps stuff, of resources, has shifted. We've clicked that lever. And when we do, and there's a whole new arena of what's really important and the difference we can make for all of eternity. Let's stand and worship him together.